I've listened to 2112 by Rush for six years. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. everybody and welcome back to episode 121 of spin it the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm james and with me as always or at least as usual is connor hello i'm connor it's time to talk about the artist and then the album and then factor spin and then the songs and then we're done uh, keep spinning oh yeah that's a brief overview of what you can expect from this and every episode sorry i, I knew we had to be rushed this week. oh my gosh <laughs> How long, how long did you have that joke in mind? From the minute I started listening to the album and I realized we were doing them. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't see that coming. That is very like you and very unlike me. I can't believe you didn't get it when I immediately did it. I can't either. I just thought you were in a super hurry. I was. I'm rushed. Yes. You know who else is rushed? Rush. I was trying to think of someone funny to say there, like the Roadrunner or something. Oh. <laughs> He's not rushed. That's just his normal pace. Yeah. I feel like Wiley Coyote is the one that's rushed. Yeah, you're probably right. So I 100% picked this album this week because it's episode 121. Just like we did with Highway 61 on episode 61 with the nice, with everything. Wait, we did that with the nice? It was an accident. <laughs> I just wanted 121 to be 2112. 121, 2112. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. And I was not going to wait another 1,991 episodes either. I wasn't going to wait till actual episode 2112. Okay. Well, if it comes up, we'll do it again just in like 10 years. I mean, you could have done it on episode 211. Yeah, but. Would have made it 2112112. So then it was the same forward and backwards. Yeah, but when you pronounce it, I wanted you to say 2112121. Wouldn't you say 1212112? Yeah, you could do that too. Oh, okay. Yeah. If it were up to me. Which is an ironic thing to say because it is. I might pick a different Rush album altogether. I might put them in a different place on the podcast. <laughs> say it is up to you. What? Yeah. Well, <laughs> couldn't resist the poll of one twenty one twenty one twelve. But I feel like Rush is one we have a very high chance of revisiting in the future. If you haven't jumped into Rush, if this is your first exposure to Rush, honestly, your best point of entry is probably their album that came after this by a little bit, Moving Pictures. That's a good entry point. That's the one I thought you'd pick when I realized we were doing Rush, and then it wasn't. <laughs> I know. Well, do you know Moving Pictures? Do you know Rush? I know some Rush. I don't, I don't probably know the whole album, but I know that that's one of their more popular ones. It is. It, like, that's Tom Sawyer and YYZ, YYZ if you're Canadian. Yep, yep. And, <laughs> yeah, people just know a lot from that. I'm a little biased. I can own that this week because Rush is honestly one of my favorite bands of all time, and they've really helped influence the way that I listen to music, but... I definitely think they're a band that can have a high barrier to entry sometimes. They don't click with everyone, and it might be maybe another speed bump in the year of healing, depending on how you respond to it. We'll see. Especially Getty's voice. We'll find out. We'll find out. People like to critique Getty's voice. There are valid criticisms of Rush, and then there are invalid criticisms of Rush, I think. If you can't get into Getty's voice, I can't blame you. You know, I get it. But their lyrics are really often wide in scope, very thoughtful. Neil Peart has such a knack for storytelling, and they're all excellent instrumentalists, too, and musicians, which I think is a massive reason they've stayed so relevant and so influential. And one of the criticisms I think is invalid about them is that they're not very good musically. <laughs> I've heard that one, and I disagree. Uh -huh. But one of the things I've always really loved about Rush is that as a three-piece band, they always were very intentional about trying to write music that can be played live by a three-piece band. They never really do a ton of overdubs or extra flourish and even when they get into their synthier era kind of in the 80s and stuff getty like takes over triple duty to cover the synth and the bass and the vocals just like masters of their craft each of them and i think put them together and make something really special people call neil peart your favorite drummer's favorite drummer because he was just so good in a way that i think few drummers really can achieve he's honestly he's like a craftsman of drumming and percussion so you know a little rush I started digging into Rush singles in 2016, but it wasn't until late 2017 that I first picked up a full album, and then 
I was big time off to the races. I started with Fly By Night, and then 2112 actually was my second Rush album. I still remember the very first time I listened to the title track. It was big. It left a huge impression on me, which not many tracks can do. But anyway, that's the start of my Rush journey. Are we allowed to pick the title track for the playlist? Anything goes. Or are we going to say no? Anything goes. It's a 20-minute track. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) We'll have to figure that out when we get down to it. The longest track on the playlist right now is nine and a half minutes, followed shortly by an eight and a half minute track. Two, three, eight and a half minute tracks. Wow. Wow. But we'll see. What do you know about Rush? What don't I know? You say that all the time, and honestly, the answer is pretty frequently not much. No, much. It is much. (laughs) What don't you know? You don't know much. That's it. I mean, I know their Canadian band that was first formed in Toronto in 1968. That is correct. That's true. And you know that because you just found it on my notes again. But now you do know it. I also know that Neil Peart is also an author. He is. That he used the butt end of the drumstick when he played often. Mm-hmm. That's not stuff that's in my notes. You're knowing things now. Wow. I know that high school friends Jeff Jones, John Rutsey, and Alex Lifeson decided to start a band. Yeah, back in 1968. Uh, yeah, back in 1968. Yep. Look at you knowing things. I do know a lot. I know John Rutsey was a drummer, and his brother's the one that actually came up with the name Rush. Great band name. Short, sweet, to the point. I can't believe it took someone until 1968 to name a band Rush, to be honest. Maybe it didn't. It's just they're the first ones to get famous enough for people to know that somebody had done it. Uh, that could be. That could be correct. Well, yeah, Rudsey plays the drums, Jeff Jones plays the bass, Alex Lifeson plays the guitar. But Jeff Jones, he found himself getting pretty busy. He couldn't always make it to rehearsals enough, so he said, hey, listen, replace me. This is not the best thing for the band. Go ahead and find someone else. Kick me out. Kick me out of this band. Yeah. So (laughs) Alex and John joined forces with their classmate, Gary Weinrib, more commonly known as Getty Lee, and two-thirds of the iconic Rush lineup was temporarily in place. Do you know why his name is Getty Lee? I feel like I do. I absolutely have heard whatever you're about to say, but no, I don't, off the top of my head. Because he was born with it. No, (laughs) could you imagine if I'd done that with somebody else, uh, that that wasn't true? Maybe he's born with it. Maybe it's Getty Lee. (laughs) That one actually works, because yeah, he wasn't born with it. Uh, His real name is Gary Lee, but his great-grandmother or something pronounced Gary as Getty. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. They actually hired a guy named Ray Daniels to be their manager, but when he came on board with the band, he decided to kick Getty out. He's like, mm, he's got to go. Dang. But that was very short-lived. After just one gig, they were like, yeah, we kind of need him. We kind of need him back. So he was a permanent fixture of the band after that. They started playing covers of rockers like Cream, Hendrix, and more in a lot of small venues like high school gymnasiums and local clubs all around Toronto. In fact, they actually got a nice legal assist from Canadian law. They lowered the drinking age from 21 to 18 in 1971, which let the band play in bars and more adult-oriented venues sooner than they would have been able to otherwise. Nice. Getty pinpoints that early era as the moment Rush became, quote, a regular working band playing six days a week which is a lot of days a week. Almost all of them. Yeah, just about. You can't really get much closer. You can't get any closer to all of them. Well, you could get to seven. Well, that is all of them, though. You can't get any closer to all of them. (laughs) During this era, they made a little demo, but try as they might, they couldn't land a contract with a label, so they launched their very own Moon Records. We're back. (laughs) We're back. The moon moon has represented itself. (laughs) The moon has, has returned to us. You're right. Moon era continues. We're back and whatever. Which way is it waxing or waning? Which one's coming and which one's going? Waxing is coming and waning is going. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. And the first one is crescent. So so we're in like a waxing, waxing crescent. crescent, right? Yeah. Isn't one like a gibbous? Yes. Is that not a thing? That's not the half. That's fatter than half. I'm fatter than half. <laughs> You're gibbous. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, back in the moon era. Well, their first self-titled record on Moon Records came out in March of 1974. It actually oversold their expectations quite a bit and peaked at number 86 on the RPM Top Albums chart in Canada. They started drawing comparisons to Led Zeppelin from a lot of critics, and that's honestly very understandable, especially on that first album. But the biggest thing that happened is that their song Working Man, which was based on their experiences as a working band, touring and living this hard, blue-collar kind of lifestyle, got picked up by a radio station in Cleveland, Ohio. So people started to hear it all over the radio. The public loved it. It connected with them in a very real way, very personal way, as blue-collar 
all our listeners, and they finally had an in with record labels in the United States to get their career officially off the ground. But a few months later, they kind of made the decision that John Rutsey had to go. They had very different visions for the musical directions the band was going to take. John wanted to go for a more traditional rock sound, while Getty and Alex were obviously heading towards a very innovative kind of prog rock direction. First they thought Getty had to go, then they wanted Rutsey out. They just, in this earlier era, they did not know what they wanted. Uh, They did know what they wanted, and that's why they knew they didn't want John Rutsey. Fair enough. Yeah, and also, John just didn't love touring very much, you know, and and with as much touring as they were doing and were planning to continue doing, it was just for the best that they started to split up. Yeah. So they started auditioning new drummers, and the stars kind of aligned when they stumbled across Neil Peart, a humble farm equipment salesman and an avid thinker. He had been reading all these philosophy books, trying to hone his craft as a drummer, and he showed up to audition a few months before they were about to head to the U.S. for the first time. He officially joined the band in 1974 in July, and they went down to the United States shortly thereafter. That trio, Lee, Lifeson, and Peart, that would hold steady till the end of Rush's career. They were very heavily inspired by Yes and Pink Floyd, and they were bolstered with these new lyrical talents of their newest member, So their second album, Fly By Night, I mean, it's such a pivot from their debut album. The debut album, you know, it's it's Working Man, right? This blue-collar anthem. It's these little quarter-to-eight kind of love songs that you'd play in nightclubs and gyms, like little rock tunes. Fly By Night is a hard left turn. It's fantasy epics. It's political commentary. It's philosophy. It's time signature changes and artistry and just such a whiplash from the debut. They've very greatly matured tenfold, lyrically and musically, overnight. And it was a huge hit, too. Fly By Night hit number nine in Canada, number 113 in the U.S., and it went platinum in both. It also marks the beginning of the band's relationship with Terry Brown, their producer, who would continue working with them well into the 80s. So the prog direction's working out. Their third record, Caress of Steel, came out in 1975, and they really, really (laughs) leaned heavier still into that prog rock side. Maybe too hard for the general public. Caress of Steel is, is tough. It's a high bar of entry kind of album it features two extensive multi-part prog epics there's the 12 minute tale of the necromancer and this nearly 20 minute journey to find the fountain of lamneth it's more consistent and maybe more immersive than fly by night but it's absolutely so ambitious and not right for the audience at the time they overclocked their prog (laughs) some overclocked prog and as you might expect on an album like Caress of Steel, it doesn't sell too well. The tour underperforms. The record label comes to them and says, listen, we just lost a lot of money. So this is your last chance. Like, let's maybe do something more traditional, more normal this time, right? Like radio singles, shorter tracks, something we can really push to the general public. Something that's going to have some mass appeal. Something that's not a 20-minute fantasy epic. Otherwise, it's the end of the road for you. So... On the threat of being dropped by their label, and under this big pressure to dial it down a little bit, Rush doubles down and puts out 2112. (laughs) Would that be your response? What's your go-to response? Your label says, oh, we don't like your fantasy epics. Do something different. What do you do? I don't know what I'd do, but it'd be significant. Okay, fair enough. Well, they took six months to write 2112. Most of the songs began as a lyric from Neil, which Getty and Alex would craft music for. Not an uncommon situation for most of the songs throughout their career. 2112 was recorded in February of 1976 and came out just a month later in March. The first side of the record, and the part that's particularly a middle finger to their record label, is a 20-minute, seven-movement sci-fi prog opera set in a dystopian space future. We'll get into it once we start talking about the tracks, but obviously this was not what their label was hoping for in the slightest. It's a very bold, risky choice. They basically just said, look, this is the kind of music we want to make, and we'd rather go out with a bang, doing what we love, than compromise our art for the sake of sales or for this record deal or anything like that. The second side of the record is definitely a lot closer to something more standard or more traditional with five separate, totally standalone tracks. And it's interesting 
for as sci-fi and futuristic and spacey as the album is, it's actually very acoustic and very light, especially on the back end. After all the heavy concept and the political commentary and just the mess of things happening on the first side of the album, they really aim to make the second side a lot easier, a lot more fun to listen to. Maybe not more fun, just like lighter, right? It's not something you have to dig as much into. They're back to just a crescent, but not a gibbous. Sure. And in a massive we told you so moment 2112 starts to sell a lot the double down pays off the double down pays off huge it sells more than any of their other albums it hits number five in canada number 61 in the united states and it stayed on the charts for 37 weeks it took the band on a 140 show tour across canada and the u.s and into europe for the first time which they turned into a live album today 2112 is their second best-selling record and so what they did is they went to their label and said hey you work for us now like here are our demands first of all how dare you second of all step off like we get to do our own thing we're, we're not taking any more notes from you and the label was like oops sorry yes go ahead do do your thing and they gave rush pretty much total freedom over the rest of their releases going forward which would really be invaluable for the band's ambition and creative direction and that freedom opened the doors of prog rock wide for them for the rest of their career really their next two records a farewell to kings and hemispheres are connected by another interstellar odyssey into a black hole where they put an end to conflict between the greek gods like it's a lot those two tracks together combined total almost 28 and a half minutes but they keep singing songs there are dragons to slay and fountains of youth to find and they keep doing their thing i think in a lot of ways the band really hits their prime from 1980 to 1982 though it's obviously very subjective and you can make a lot of arguments in a lot of ways for prime rush but it's interesting too because they never lock themselves into one pigeonhole their music kind of ebbs and flows with the genre and with the times synths come and go lyrics and themes pivot i feel like no two rush albums sound the same in some key ways keeps them fresh they eventually do forego their trademark long songs but they really do keep probing with their lyrics and keeping you on your toes musically it's just a lot of fun i don't know i could talk for a hundred hours about everything they've done but for the sake of episode length and for the sake of revisit potential in the future on a different episode i will spare you the long and short of it is from their founding in 1968 until they decided to officially hang it up in 2015 rush would release 19 studio albums 11 live albums and even a short cover album three records would go multi-platinum 14 would go platinum and 24 would go gold the riaa actually ranks them in third place behind the beatles and the rolling stones for the most consecutive gold or platinum albums by a rock band and to date they're ranked 84th in album sales in the united states and total worldwide record sales stand at more than 40 million units after their 40th anniversary tour, their R40 tour, things naturally just started to wind down. Alex Lifeson was struggling with arthritis. Neil Peart was battling tendonitis, which obviously make it pretty tough on a guitarist and a drummer to play the way that they do. Neil Peart officially announced his retirement shortly thereafter, which marks the official end of Rush. I never did get to see Rush live. I didn't even become a fan until after their touring days were over. That's sad. It is so sad. They would be... Like, if I could see any band that has ever been live, they'd be in my top three. So that's a shame. On January 7th of 2020, Neil Peart passed away at the age of 67 after a battle with brain cancer. I'm not typically one to get hit hard by celebrity deaths, necessarily, but, like, it was so unexpected. It was one of those times where I remember where I was when I heard about it, and I had just listened to one of their records earlier in the day. Alex and Getty, though, they still hang out, they talk frequently, and they've toyed around with the idea of making music not as Rush, which is a moniker they've respectfully retired, but they have performed together on several special occasions and getty even wrote a book actually i saw the other day he's written a second book as well his first book is a massive encyclopedia about bass guitars i actually own it <laughs> and i met him at a book signing event fist bumped him that was a surreal moment but his second book is i think an autobiography so that's cool and as far as Rush's further accolades go, they've influenced everybody from the Foo Fighters to Metallica to the Red Hot Chili Peppers to Soundgarden to Iron Maiden. Like I said, you know, they're your favorite musicians' favorite musicians, is what they say. 
In 2012, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, though they always kind of looked at the Hall of Fame with a certain degree of cynicism. They also made the Canadian Music Hall of Fame in 1994, and they're in various other halls of fame as well. In 2010, they got their star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and documentaries about Rush have also earned film festival awards and even Grammy nominations. I can't imagine earning a Grammy nomination for your documentary, but they did. Try having a better imagination. (laughs) I should, really, I should. They also earned Billboard's Legends of Live Award for their contributions to performance art. And in 1996, they were the first rock musicians to be made Officers of the Order of Canada. They also have nine Juno Awards and seven Grammy nominations. So that's Rush, in the nutshell. Love them. What a trio. What a music-making group. And 2112, what an album, right? I just love the idea behind it. Label says no, they said absolutely, and we get this. But with that, I'll quit blabbering. I'll let the mixtaper come in and try and fool me. We'll see what we get this week. I'm hoping to bounce back from our last round of Factor Spin. From a shutout? That was our last round of Factor Spin, was a filthy shutout. So I'm sure hoping to get some here. Do better. Yeah, I need to do better. I guess I should get out of here. I guess you should. Hey, it's me, the mixtape. Uh, got four facts for you. One, two, three, four. Some of them were spins, some of them were facts. Gotta go. Bye. No, Connor already yeah. no, Connor already did that joke. Uh, what? He stole my rush joke? He did. He stole your rush joke. I was walking all around the apartment bragging about how excited I was to do that joke, and he stole it? Yeah, shamelessly. There will be consequences. You should have been in more of a rush to tell it. <laughs> how dare you? I'm feeling pretty good this week. Really? That scares me because Rush is a band that I'm obviously a very big fan of that I know pretty well. I straight up, I read one of Neil Peart's books. I need to read more of them. Yeah. I own Getty's book. I don't know. I just don't know how much you'll be able to get past me this week. I don't know. We'll see. I don't want to sound too cocky. Every time I get too cocky, I plummet. (laughs) But I also don't want to mislead you into thinking I know less than I do. That's true. Well, in that case, if you're so cocky, pick a number. Two. Two. They had an interesting merch item. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, we're starting strong. (laughs) I don't know about a lot of Rush merch. What's their interesting item? Soda. Soda? They sold a special soda. What's it flavored like? I don't know. Oh. (laughs) Well, what's it called? Is it a Rush pun? So I kind of buried a lead here. No, you didn't bury very deep this time if I hit it on the second question. Well, it's because the title gives away the lead. It's called, I don't know how how that's intended to be read, but I'm going to choose to go with Rush Kiss Soda. Rush Kiss Soda. Maybe it's supposed to be Kiss Rush Soda. So you can't tell what order the words are in? I'm looking at a can of it. Maybe it's just supposed to be pronounced soda, and then the Kiss and the Rush are just like advertisement for the bands. So it's Kiss and Rush collaborating. Correct. That's the lead that I buried. It's a Kiss and Rush collaborative merch item is it it's a merch item is it meant to be drank yeah is this like a collectible can or something i don't yeah yeah yeah. this is it's meant to be drank it was sold so rush opened for kiss back when they were getting started right okay and so this was like kiss was doing a thing back then where we didn't really talk about this much on the kiss episode but kiss like had a lot of famous bands open for them yeah they did (laughs) i don't think we really touched on that in our kiss episode no we didn't but something that they would do when they had a band you know they were big about trying to advertise for their opening bands to help get them started because they only brought on people that they felt were good enough to perform alongside them that's cool and a little cocky i read i read this whole interview thing about how like they would not like turn down their volume to make kiss seem bigger than them you know it was full frontal opening band like you go out there knock their socks off sort of thing and like the way that they split the money and everything was super casual because they're like if we put together a good show the money will come so we don't need to like get into all that it was actually a really cool document to read but that's besides the fact the thing is kiss would do a collaborative merch item with each of their opening acts sure that they'd sell and the one that they did with rush was the soda where it's it's like kiss and then the first s in kiss is the S in Rush. So they're like crossword style. Oh. You know, running through one another. Okay. So that's why I don't know if it should be pronounced Rush Kiss Soda or Kiss Rush Soda or if it's just soda and the Kiss Rush thing is just the logo. I don't really know. 
but gotcha it's weird that is weird what kind of stuff did they do for other artists that they had on their tours i don't know i didn't look it up okay so why soda then oh no <laughs> okay okay rush kiss i think this is a spin rush kiss or kiss rush please yes we talked a lot about how kiss does weird merch and how they've licensed themselves to everything and i feel like this is just a play on that i feel like this is just a an extension of that fact okay it's so locking it in yeah i'm gonna lock in spin grab this photo ah there it is copy image discord you're going through a lot of trouble to tell me this isn't true this is a spin it's a spin <laughs> Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Based it off of an actual Kiss soda that they sold. Okay. Through Funko. Oh. A Funko soda. Ew. Oh. Came with the Funko Pop. It was weird. Sounds a little too funky for me. They did tour with them as their opening act and all that jazz. But yeah, no collaborative soda. Creative of you, though, to even make up a fake logo for it. Yeah, and I thought if I really went into detail on that, it'd make you distracted from maybe some of the spinny yeah no that was definitely a good call that's one of the things that made this trickier it's good that's good i'm relieved that my flipping seven fact drought is over i finally <laughs> finally over finally answered one right wow hmm. well pick another number well let's go with one next with number one next yeah they have an unfinished song yeah i do believe that <laughs> maybe what tell me more what's the song called scrunched scrunched yeah can you use that in a sentence uh. <laughs> <laughs> he scrunched the strings on his bag oh okay maybe is that really like the definition or is it you just make it up things no well so it depends on so definition one is to crunch or crush and definition two was to draw or squeeze together tightly so i went with definition two okay to like cinch yeah uh another one is to draw together to take when taken like less literally like to bring something together is to scrunch it sure i guess it seems similar to scrunch to be honest with you. Yes, it does. When <laughs> did they start writing this song? It was a Neil Peart song. He wrote most of the songs, I believe. Yep, at least lyrically. I don't know if it was to mentioned in one of his books, or I, I, I don't know where it first came up. I found this on a Reddit post. Oh. And so I don't know its exact origin, but there were several threads about interesting, like, deep lore about Rush, and this one kept coming up, so I figured it had to be somewhat true. Fair enough. Do you know why it's unfinished? Neil just never finished it. He never could pull together it in the way he wanted. It had an interesting flair to it that he could never quite nail down. Okay. What was that interesting flair? What, what was that interesting flair? He wanted to use as many unique or special words in it as he could. Oh, that's very Neil Peardy. Yeah. How do you mean unique or special? Like just unusual words like scrunch? I think so. Uh, scrunched seems to be the longest monosyllabic word. Oh, okay. So like words with unique linguistic qualities, kind of. I think so. I don't know. The, the Reddit post just said unique or interesting words. And then they provide the example of like the title, not only meaning to like bring these unique and interesting words together, but also is a unique and interesting word. Yeah. Like how typewriter is like the longest word you could type with the top row of a keyboard or something. Oh, I didn't know that, but that probably would have been in his list of words to use. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just like that kind of word. I think this is true. I think this is a fact. Lock that in for me. I would like to lock that in. This is a spin. Really? Oh, that hurts. <laughs> That's such a true sounding thing. I know. That's courtesy of a fan who is also a fan of Rush. And so they knew. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they put that one like completely together too. I really didn't have to do any flair to it. Well, so like Neil Peart's done songs when you said he wanted to use unique and interesting words. Uh -huh. The song that came to my mind is Anagram for Mongo, oh. where he takes anagrams and just uses those, like twists those into lyrics. Maybe that's what inspired this spin. It totally could be. Honestly, when you said that's such a Neil Peart thing to do, I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely, absolutely what he would do. I can't believe it. Good job. That's, I mean, hats off to you, fan. Wow. Yeah. Spin it. Fact-finding department has really stepped up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Pick another number. Let's go with one. Go with one? All right. Neil Peart can play a unique instrument. Is it the drums? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Nailed it. Name another instrument that's no. like drums. That's pretty unique. Oh, I thought you wanted me to like name one. No, because you can't. Fair enough. What other instrument does he play uniquely? Plywood. Plywood? Does he play plywood like a drum? Probably. <laughs> just, just hitting plywood, it just kind of turns it into a drum. But does he do something else with it? I think he just played plywood. Probably banged on it. For what? On a recording? For fun? Yeah, no, no. As an instrument. Where? When? He's credited with playing plywood on their album Moving Pictures. Now I'm thinking through Moving Pictures. Where have I heard plywood before? It's certainly possible. That distinctive sound, plywood, where have I heard it? Well, didn't we have a fact a while ago about someone who was credited for playing a chair? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't remember where that was. This definitely could be possible. Could be, but is it? You don't know what song the plywood's on? You don't know where? No. Because I'm thinking of like YYZ, the, the whip sound. But that sounds like the, what's that called? That instrument where you smack the wood together, like in Sleigh Ride. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it makes a whip sound and you smack wood together. Yeah. That could be it. Could be it. But that's got a real name that's not plywood. (laughs) We don't know what its name is. Maybe it is plywood. (laughs) It's fair enough. Yeah, I think this is probably true. A true fact? Well, I'm going to get you on a technicality here. Your fact isn't Neil Peart did play a unique instrument. It's Neil Peart can play a unique instrument. And if that unique instrument is just hitting plywood with drumsticks, of course he can. I'm going to say it's a fact. Mm. Do you know that technicality won't stand? I know, uh. but, but <laughs> it seems to me whether he did or not is irrelevant. But I think he still maybe did. Lock that in for him? No, lock it in. As a fact. This is... A fact. a fact first time i've told the truth in like two and a half episodes right it really is i was really hoping you were gonna be like i think he's going for all spins again <laughs> that'd be scary i didn't even that didn't even cross my mind but it's true you've told wow 11 spins in a row yeah wild it's called by the way that slappy thing it's called a protalis or a clapper so it is just called a clapper I think, though, that I really should listen to Moving Pictures again and see if I can hear it. Yeah, I purposely didn't look up any of the information about what song it was and stuff because I wanted to have less information to make you think I was spinning. Didn't work. Yeah. Plywood (laughs) on Moving Pictures. Here we go. Oh, look at this. It is the thing in YYZ. It's that little clap. And they said Neil got the sound by slapping a piece of plywood on the back of a chair. On a chair? What is it with playing chairs? It's a drummer (laughs) thing, I guess. I don't know. Well, look at that. We did it. All right. And I guess that leaves us with which one? That leaves number us with two. Two with number two? Uh-huh. Neil Peart has a fun cameo. Neil Peart has a fun cameo. What cameo is that? The Adventures of Power. The Adventures of Power. You're talking about a very obscure indie movie by Ari Gold that we watched in choir class. I mean, a decade ago, right? Yeah. That Connor and I, when I said we, I meant Connor and I. Well, I was there too. Oh, I didn't know you then. Yeah. Well, that's a surprise for me. Neil Peart has a fun cameo in The Adventures of Power. Yeah, for all those who weren't in that choir class. Yeah, tell the audience about Adventures of Power. Adventures of Power is a 2008 American adventure comedy film written and directed by Ari Gold, starring Gold, Michael McKean, Jane Lynch, Shoshana... Uh, names, I'm done reading names. Nick Kroll's in it, apparently. Yes, he is. In this fictional small town of Lode, New Mexico, just about all of the male townsfolk work for a copper mining plant, including Power. Power, whose name was... Ca- you don't need to do the whole... Oh, oh. It's a movie about a guy who wants to be an air drummer. A professional air drummer. Yeah. And he studies and studies and practices and practices to air drum. He goes through like this karate kid level story arc to become the world's greatest air drummer and win like a regional New Jersey talent show. Yeah. It's really a trip. It's such a funny movie. And the power plant goes like on strike or something. It is also, yeah, very a pro-union piece. Yeah. But one of the songs that he tries very hard to air drum to and his like reckoning, right? He starts out not being able to do it and then he comes full circle and at the end of the movie, that's like, sorry, spoilers for the movie you haven't seen and probably won't watch. (laughs) He comes full circle and he drums to win the competition to rushes tom sawyer yeah and he drums so hard at the competition that he passes out and when he wakes up from passing out who's standing over him reviving him but neil peart the professor himself helping him to his feet yeah saying good job air drumming i mean what a get for this movie what are, what are you trying to do here? I, you know I've seen this movie. Uh-huh. Is this just a gimme? No. He has a fun DVD extra 
on the movie. Okay, a fun DVD extra. This goes deeper. <laughs> That's great. What is Neil Peart's DVD extra? A drum-off competition. Ooh, a drum-off. Playing Tom Sawyer? I don't know. Yes, probably. Uh-huh. Against whom? I would assume the titular character. Yeah. I don't own the DVD. I have not seen said drum off no i also don't own the dvd however all the dvd extras are available and easily watchable online and i've seen this that's a fact oh i was hoping you hadn't seen the dvd extra oh (laughs) darn it was a gimme it was it was but i appreciate that you tried to go deeper you took a bold choice in going for something that i knew and you went deep i did I knew you're a huge fan of Adventures of Power, but I was like, has he seen the DVD extra? And if I do this right, I can set it up like I wanted him to just not know about the cameo. And then when I throw in the DVD extra, he'll think I panic and just lock and spin. Yeah. But he's seen the DVD extra. My mind games did not work. Now, before you lock in that answer... Keep in mind, we're trying to go 50-50. Oh, (laughs) no, I already gave you a gimme recently. I'm I'm just saying, you know. Earth, wind, and fire. Your goal is 50-50. Yeah, but honestly. You're failing if you lock in fact right now. That's all I'm saying is you failed. That's fair. But between you and me, after the last shutout week, things got a little close for comfort (laughs) on our overall season score. So I'm going to just hedge my bets a little bit and continue to lock in fact. Fair enough. Well, this is... A fact. Just in the <laughs> farthest back corner of my mind, I thought maybe you were about to say spin because you slipped in some fake information, <laughs> like you jelly babied me, and I forgot it or said it wrong. But no, thank goodness. Huh, what a bounce back. We need to watch The Adventures of Power again. Yeah. Darn, you've seen the DVD extra. I'm a big fan of Rush, Neil Peart, and The Adventures of Power. It was a triple whammy. Well, I wasn't sure if you knew the cameo appearance either, to be honest with you, because like you said, you didn't get into Rush till after high school, and we really got into that in high school. That's true, but I was a regular watcher of The Adventures of Power. That's fair. That overlapped with my Rush fandom. That's fair. And then such a big enough fan, you went and watched the DVD extras. Yeah. Wow. It's a funny movie. It's a stupid funny movie. Pretty great. Audience, if you've seen something like Hot Rod or Napoleon Napoleon Dynamite, like that, it's that kind of stupid comedy. It's exactly Napoleon Dynamite level, yes. Well, that was fun. That was a good week. I'm not trying to rush you out the door, but we do have an album to talk about. Well, if you're not rushing me, I think I'll stay. Oh, well, hmm. (laughs) Your move. (laughs) Just, you know, like... Just if you have any plans, I don't want to keep you from anything. You might have no, to- no. I'm free the rest of the evening. Oh, the whole rest of the evening, huh? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I could just really kick up my feet, relax, just okay. chatting with my with my podcast partner. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're gonna stick around the rest of the night, let me order some pizzas. You can go pick them up and then bring them back. We'll have a nice pizza party for the rest of the. Oh, I'll take the blimp. Yep, I'm sure they'll love that. All right, I'll go. Wait, what are your preferred pizza toppings? Let me know. I'll put them in the order. I'm a pepperoni mushroom guy. Does that work for you? Uh, yeah, well, but I need pineapple on mine. It's the dastardliest of pizza toppings. Yeah, I suppose it is. Okay, well, we'll get a pepperoni mushroom, and half of it will have pineapple on it. Oh, I should ask. I'll ask Connor if he wants any pizza. You get going now. Get a head start. I'll put in the order while you're on the way. Yeah, well, I gotta I gotta inflate the blimp. And you inflate it's... it from scratch? Yeah, so it'll take me a minute, so I better go now. Yeah, you better go now. Okay. Well, how else do I hide it? Yeah! Asking the real questions. Welcome back, Connor. That should keep him busy long enough for us to talk about 2112. Are you actually going to order the pizza for him? Yeah. It'd be mean if he just showed up, asked for the order, and it never existed. Gotta be funny, though. It would. Let's talk about the album cover. It says Rush. It says Rush. And it has the numbers 2112. I wonder what those mean. Those are numbers. What do they mean? 2112. Whoa. In reality, I think they signify a year, but that's fine. That's the year we should have done this episode. Oh, that wouldn't. I would never make it. <laughs> Well, that's quitter talk. I guess I don't know how far medicine will advance. We just need to get that time machine. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> this album cover is the basis for Russia's famous Starman logo. The red circle in the middle with the star is meant to represent the tyrannical Solar Federation, the governing body in the universe of 2112, the song. Peart says that the star man has become a symbol. He says it's the abstract man against the masses. The red star symbolizes any collectivist mentality, and the star man is meant to be pushing back against that. The album cover was conceptualized and created by Hugh Syme, who designed Rush's Caress of Steel cover prior to this, and who would go on to design and work on 38 
and counting future Rush projects. He's also worked for artists like Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, Quiet Riot, Night Ranger, Survivor, Bad English, Sticks, Celine Dion, Kiss, another reason that maybe their logos could have crossed, who knows, Megadeth, Def Leppard, The Band, Iron Maiden, Earth, Wind & Fire, Alice Cooper, The Allman Brothers Band, many, many, many more. Hugh Syme, what an artist. Wow. I know. When he created the Starman logo, he said he never imagined that it would become the band's primary logo and become so recognized. The Starman also appears on the covers of All the Worlds a Stage, Moving Pictures, Feedback, and a few other Rush collections. It was also very regularly on Neil Peart's bass drums, and it's even featured on a Canadian postage stamp. I feel like it's almost a given that this album cover is good for the album because it stars in the spacey sky and then that red circle that solar federation logo that is a part actually a part of the first song yeah it's simple but it's kind of clever in its simplicity simple and clean yeah now comes the part that personally i've been waiting for i am so curious to get your thoughts about the songs on this album first up is our seven-part sci-fi odyssey rock opera really 2112 rock bro yeah it was heavily heavily inspired by Anne rand and her objectivist philosophy which neil had drawn on for years in his lyrics going all the way back to fly by night rush actually never performed all of 2112 live until 1996 but they would frequently do parts of the song little bits and pieces what did you think you look at this album and you see the first song is 20 minutes long what's going through your head we're going, uh, oh boy. In a good way? In a way. I don't really know what to expect. No? Well, 20 minutes means it's either going to be really good or really bad. Not really much. Room in the middle. That's true. <laughs> well, I feel like with this song, though, there kind of is because there are distinct chunks. Yeah. It's very broken up, so it helps with the flow. It's not just 20 minutes of, of one thing. The first part of the song is the overture, first four and a half minutes, and like all overtures, really, is made up of pieces of the rest of the song, kind of a flyby preview of what's coming down the pike. There are little bits of Oracle and the Temple of Syrinx and presentation and soliloquy and the finale, plus a very gripping interpolation of Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture. Yeah. What'd you think of the beginning? The, the big rock instrumental. Liked it. Good. Instrumentals are kind of your thing. I was banking on that, kind of setting the hook early just to see, to get you drawn in and ready for it. It ends with a single lyric, and the meek shall inherit the earth, which is an allusion to Bible verses, Psalm 37, 11, and Matthew 5, 5. And it's a little preview of our eventual meek protagonist that we haven't even met yet. We don't know he exists, but he's coming. He is meek and he is coming. Yes, exactly. And suddenly then the guitar picks up and we're thrust into this dystopian future. It's loud and chaotic with the temples of Syrinx. This is where it starts to become a tale. How much of the story did you glean on listen number one? Uh, it was hard to follow. I can believe that. One thing I do want to mention about that overture section is what they play. They play with the stereo mix again. Uh-huh. With the bump-bump-bump-bump-bump-bump-bump-bump-bump-bump that happens at like the one minute mark. It like starts on the left and just bumps its way over to the right. Like you always think like something happened to your headset or like the song or something because how quiet it gets as it like travels yeah. from one to the other. It's actually really kind of cool. Yeah, I got to agree. I really like Alex Lifeson as a guitar player. He's just, I mean, in this early era, he rocks hard. You know, he's always very good at what he does. But then as Rush evolves and their sound changes, he also starts to adapt. Not necessarily particular to 2112. But when the band starts getting synthier, right, in the 80s and stuff, Hold Your Fire, whatever, he has to start learning how to play around a synth and how to not carry a song but how to really properly like fully accent it in such a different context how to caress a song yeah just like they caressed steel on the last album they caress songs yeah that's actually not a bad word to describe it to be perfectly honest but yeah you're welcome <laughs> yes so the story that you get in the temples of syrinx through the lyrics we come to find out that the world has become this oppressive theocracy run by priests who worship computers that fill the hallowed halls. Oh, no. Yeah. All the gifts of life are held within their walls like they control everything. They run the world. Who runs the world? The priests of the temples of Syrinx. It's not as catchy <laughs> of a song, but in this case, it's what the reality is. It comes out especially in the second verse. They say, look around the world we've made. 
equality are stock in trade. Like they crafted this from the ground up. And then they talk about the red star, the symbol of their revolution, the same red star that's on the cover, hold the red star proudly high in hand. So we get this rough picture of like the tyrants that lead the world. And then we pivot. We shift the focus away from the temple, away from the center of government, whatever you want to call it, to a quiet, secluded cave somewhere. In the next section of the song, Discovery. There's nature sounds, waterfalls. It's really quiet and a definite contrast to the first two parts of the song. How'd it grab you? Not as well. Really? I thought the ballad guy would appreciate the slowdown. Where in the song does it? Like at the slowdown around seven minutes? Yeah, like 647, seven. Yeah, I don't know. It, the way it was just like the guitar and the, the the strums were like ringing. Yeah. That part didn't get me. Really? I like it a lot. By the time you get into like the 830 mark where like it the singing comes in and the rest of the instruments fill it out. That part I liked. Well, the reason I guess it's so off or so different in that part is because see our nameless protagonist is finally here. He's appeared and he's discovered. Mm, And he sucks. He sucks because he's just (laughs) discovered a guitar for the first time. Uh... An ancient device buried deep underground. So the first part of the... Wait, hang on a second. Are you telling me this is a concept album? It's definitely a concept song. The rest of the album, no, but 2112 is very much a conceptual piece. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he finds the guitar, and it sounds funny because he's learning how to play it. They reflect that in the music, where he's trying to tune it, trying to figure out how to make it make sounds. And the part that you talked about, where it really picks up and he starts singing, is when he does know what to do with it. It's cool. Fair enough. Yeah, the concept is that music hasn't really existed for a long time in this world. The priests have kind of taken it away, footloose style. But he doesn't realize that. <laughs> he he doesn't know the history of it. He thinks he's just discovered something new. And so he's thrilled by his quote-unquote invention of music. And so he runs off to the priests to tell him, look, I made this new thing. It's music. This is a guitar. And how cool is it? Bad call. Bad call. Bad, bad call. (laughs) That takes us into the presentation section of the song. The priests crush his dreams instantly. (laughs) I like how the music kind of returns to that same theme from the Temples of Syrinx as our character goes there. Like we could tell where we are physically in the story because of how it sounds. I like that a lot. But the priests take one look at him and they go, what? Music? Oh, yeah. We got rid of that. No more. We we got rid of it, threw it away. It's another toy that helped destroy the elder race of man. And then they smash his guitar right up to pieces. Sad. So our hero is stunned. He retreats back to his home. He falls asleep. And he starts to dream of an oracle, this omniscient oracle, who whisks him back through time to see, semi-firsthand, the elder race of man that was talked about by the priests and alluded to. He sees all their former achievements, all the buildings, the music, and all the things that, like, mankind accomplished. And he learns, through the Oracle, that the elder race of men didn't die off. In fact, they left. They escaped the priests and the government. Plot twist. Plot twist. Big time. And now the truth has just been totally covered up and swept under the rug by the priests and the rulers. But he's also got this premonition that the power of the elder race is growing. And someday they're going to return to tear down the temples and overthrow the tyrants and it's a whole mess but he wakes up with this new information with this revelation he realizes just how bleak the world is he's discovered something i guess you know taking the red pill he's out of the matrix and now he's just aware of this reality that he's been living in and how things actually are and he can't go on he decides that it's time for his lifeblood to spill over in a real dark moment the song kind of implies that he ends his life but in the comic that accompanies the song, the protagonist lives. So either he does die, or maybe he has his dream come true at the last second. The elder race of man comes back in an attack that encompasses the song's grand finale. It's the battle at the very end. It's loud and explosive. A lot of complicated instrumentals and guitar solos. By the end of the song, all we hear is like a siren-sounding instrumental with a series of explosions and an ominous voice repeating, Attention all planets of the Solar Federation. We have assumed control. Kind of left open to interpretation. Peart says the ending, where the elder race of men comes back and saves the day, maybe? Question mark? He calls it a double surprise, a real Hitchcock killer. So that's the song, in the nutshell. It's pretty heavy. 
pretty lengthy. What did you think of the story? How much of the story did you get? Not much. Really? Oh, <laughs> that makes me sad. It was one listen. I was doing the best I could. Yeah. So I guess then most of it was like lost on you, right? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> well, maybe if you re-listen to it, knowing the story, maybe it'll be better. I'm holding out hope. Doubt it. Doubt well, it. Well, that's because... Doubt well, it. hang on now. Calm down. That either means it was already good and it couldn't get better, or I hate it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of those options is good. The other one, dang. Do you have a favorite section of the story, of these seven parts? Is there one that was extra good? The first one. Oh, just the overture? I'll take that. It's got pieces of all the other songs in it. So in a way, it's kind of like you like the whole thing. Yeah, in a way. <laughs> uh is it too much? That's my other question for you. This big 20-minute epic. It was maybe a few minutes too long, but not as too much as I was thinking it might be. Okay, I'll consider that a win. And I'd like to remind you that the longest song you brought to the podcast <laughs> is already like 16 minutes long, so... Yeah, so that's about the right length. This one's four minutes too long. Sure. Well, we cut your overture, and they're right down to size. How dare you? <laughs> not that I'd ever do it. I like 2112. I think it's such a unique piece of music. That's kind of one reason I really wanted to do this album for the podcast either way there's not many opportunities that you find a song like this to talk about and to cover and so fair enough just wanted to take us through the weeds a little bit so with that massive mini rock opera covering side a we get into the way more casual easier lighter flip side of the record with a passage to bangkok when you think is this one a relief from the big long package instantly oh pretty instantly i was like the with the da 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 i was like oh what are we listening to here <laughs> what is this yeah it's different i honestly do love that opening of the song a lot it's rocky but it obviously incorporates a bit of influence from other parts of the world too it's cool and that's because the whole song is kind of like as Getty says, a travelogue for all the places in the world that grow the best weed. <laughs> so, you know, as rock stars in the 1970s, they shout them out. They talk about Bogota, Colombia, Jamaica, Lebanon, Kathmandu, Afghanistan, Morocco. They only stop for the best, as they say. As they say. It's got such a unique feel to it. I really like it a lot. It does. It's the most unique song on the album, feel-wise. <laughs> Hold on. Whoa. <laughs> Really? You just listen to a 20-minute sci-fi rock opera, and you think that A Passage to Bangkok is the most unique song on the album? Yeah, but that, like, fits the rest of the sound of the album. This one, like, stands out. Oh, okay. No, okay. Yeah, when you put it like that... That was 20 minutes of the sound I expected to hear. This one was not. <laughs> fair, fair enough. One of the things that I love about this song is the beginning of the guitar solo. It's one of my favorite moments Rush has ever put together. It just rips right into the solo out of the silence. Yeah, why don't you marry it? Well, that doesn't seem like there's any real course of action for me to do that. There are several reasons I wouldn't marry it, but I do like it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, it sounds like that's a bit of an upswing. I'll take that. What did you think about the Twilight Zone? Are you familiar with the show, The Twilight Zone? Yeah, of course I am. Come on now. I figured you would be. How's the song relate to it for you? <laughs> I guess, how familiar are you with The Twilight Zone? Because, I mean, this song is based on the show, but obviously the verses allude to two specific episodes. So I don't know if you... No, I'm not that specific. I haven't seen the whole show. I've seen episodes, seen like the highlights. Uh-huh. I actually hadn't seen the show. I was taking notes to talk about this album. I was getting ready for it, and I was like, you know what? I should watch one of the episodes that they talk about in the verses. Yeah. So I didn't quite read the lyrics, but I looked up what episode it was supposed to be, and I watched the episode in the second verse. It's an episode called Stopover in a Quiet Town, and it was really interesting. I kind of want to go back and watch all the Twilight Zone stuff now, at least more of them. It, it was a super popular show. Yeah, big time it was. But... My biggest gripe about the episode is that I figured out what was going on more or less in the first five minutes. And so the, the rest, the other 20 minutes was like, how have they not figured this out yet? Like, how haven't they put it together? Yeah, I feel like that happens with a lot of episodes from what I've heard. It could be. Is that they're not the most hidden plots. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Well, the second verse, the stopover in a quiet town one, it's about a man and a wife who wake up 
in an empty village trying to figure out what's going on. Turns out it's actually like almost a dollhouse, like a toy village for a giant alien baby. Not baby, kid. <laughs> what is a kid but a larger baby? Yeah, that's true. An old baby. An old baby. <laughs> the first verse alludes to a song called, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up? That's funny. Isn't it? I know. Well, it's funny now because obviously the only thing I thought of was, Will the Real Slim Shady Please Stand Up? Although I'm sure... That's an opposite direction kind of thing where Eminem named that after this. Probably. Probably. I don't think the Twilight Zone predicted Eminem, but... I mean, the Simpsons predict stuff all the time. Why can't the Twilight Zone? A little bit of a different... I hope the Twilight Zone hasn't predicted much (laughs) from what I know. But a spacecraft crashes on this little island town and the aliens dart away into a diner. So the police have to like do this detective thing and figure out who the imposter is. It's like they did predict Among Us, I guess. (laughs) See, they're predicting stuff left and right. Oh, no. Actually, the Twilight Zone was the last song that Rush wrote for the record when they realized they needed a little more material to fill out the album. So they whipped up the Twilight Zone. They were big fans of the show. What'd you think of it, musically? I liked it. I like the guitar on this one. It's clean. This is the first song that's like a full-on cleaner song. I like that eerie feeling they kind of put behind the chorus, especially. Yeah. They actually even credited Twilight Zone creator Rod Sterling in the liner notes of their previous album, Caress of Steel, and on their future album, too. (laughs) He gets a lot of nods. But yeah, The Twilight Zone, I honestly like it better now that I've seen some of the show. I need to watch more of it. I haven't seen any of the episodes you talked about, and I liked it too. Oh, we could watch the one in the first verse together, the Martian one. We could. The other thing that's interesting about 2112 as an album is that like so much of Rush's discography is Neil Peart writes the lyrics, Getty and Alex write the music, right? That's just generally the way that they work. On 2112, that's not the case. Lessons and Tears, an upcoming song, those are written. Alex Lifeson wrote Lessons, Getty wrote Tears, did it all by themselves. So I also like that dimension to this album too. It's unique in that way. Lessons is so catchy. It's a song about being punished as a kid, which doesn't necessarily fit the sound of the song, I don't think. But the whole thematic gist of the song is that once you've been punished, you've learned a lesson. You're better equipped to face the future. And that, I think, matches the tone a lot better. Lessons feels like it'd be right at home on Fly By Night, which I don't think means much to you. But it does not. Just in general. No, Lessons is Something for Nothing, I think, are spot on with their previous style. I like some of the lyrics in here. We've told you before, but you didn't hear us. You didn't listen. So we have to, like, make sure you understand and learn your lesson so that you don't repeat your mistakes. Like, how much easier would life be if we only had to learn all our lessons once? And then we just got it right every time afterwards. That's a good point. I don't know. I'm getting the sense that you struggled through this album a little bit. I don't know what made you think that, but if that's how you feel. I just, I'm getting the sense that it wasn't your favorite. I'm getting the sense that you fall on the wrong side of that barrier to entry. I don't think you got over it. Maybe prog rock and math rock isn't your thing. I'm just trying to think back to our past prog rock episodes, like Yes and The Nice and other stuff like that. I think I think you're about 50-50 on it. You seem to like Yes well enough, but not in a lot of ways that I thought you might. I think the nice kind of got lost on you. And you just eviscerated Dark Side of the Moon. So How dare you. So I don't know. I Maybe my expectations should have been a little more tempered. But we're not even to final spin yet. I'm putting thoughts in your head and words in your mouth. Yeah, how dare you just How dare you assume? We'll see. We'll see how right I am. But we got a couple songs left to go, including track five, Tears, the Getty Lee penned track. It's actually the very first Rush song to feature an outside musician. Of all people, Hugh Syme, their cover artist, stepped up and he played a Mellotron for this track. Do you remember the Mellotron? Totally. The Mellotron, it's like a, an analog synthesizer that uses actual tapes instead of digital sounds, right? When you press a key, it winds the tape up and plays the sound on a cassette, basically. Hmm. It's cool. We've talked about that in the past. Sounds familiar. Also, they never, ever played Tears live. Oh, really? Yeah. I think Tears is probably the pinnacle of emotion on the second half of the record. I think in a lot of ways, I mean, honestly, it lands emotionally in much more of a real way than anything on the first half, too, because it's not obscured by metaphor and symbolism. It's very grounded in reality and like actual real life and not space, the final frontier. (laughs) The final frontiers. Oh, Look at that. That's good. Thank you. That's really good. It's not really a song about crying, per se. It's a song about noticing someone you love has cried and then empathizing with the pain they're feeling and trying to help in any way you can. And to read through the lyrics, 
I mean, it gets really hard because he sees, as he says in the first verse, he says, you'd cried for me. Like he's just now starting to come to terms with some hard truths about himself and how his life and his choices have affected the people around him and brought them to tears in some cases. Like what a a situation. (laughs) It's a pretty short song, really. Only two verses, but I think it carries a lot of emotional weight and depth that it's easy to just bypass, but to sit in it and with it and think through it. Ooh, you know. And the final track on the second half of the album is Something for Nothing. It's a song about free will, probably a very logical precursor to their later song called Free Will. Moreover, though, it's about how dreams don't just happen. You can't get something for nothing. Life isn't just going to fall into your lap. You have to have some agency. You have to reach out and go after the things that you want. You have to give something for something because it's going to require sacrifice. But if it's really, really what you want, it could be worth it. Neil Peart based the mantra around freedom isn't free, a phrase that he took from some graffiti he saw while the band was on tour. And honestly, like that's kind of how Neil was. He constantly sacrificed a lot to go on tour and to live that lifestyle, even if it wasn't necessarily his bread and butter, not his favorite thing in the world to go be on the road. Lyrically, I like something for nothing a lot. It's got a lot of little tidbits in here, waiting on the winds of change to blow, waiting for a pot of gold to just appear. You could pass the days waiting for an open door, but it just does not happen. You won't get wise with the sleep still in your eyes, no matter what your dreams might be. Top tier lyricism. I love Neil Peart. Just his ability to convey an idea is pretty unparalleled. And again, just a masterclass in drumming. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the album, to another final spin. I am leery of all the things you're going to say. I just, I don't know. Either you're playing the cards really close to the chest again, which is totally an option. I just, I don't know. We'll see. As for me, I'm hoping you didn't hate it. I honestly would swing very wide on this for you. I could see this even being as low as a six from you. And while I would hope for a seven, I guess I'd be satisfied with a decently high six. I mean, I'm looking now. Yes, got a seven. I I feel like I have to go back and listen to some of these albums from the earlier days and figure out why I gave it the score I gave it. Yeah. That's the problem. I brought this up before, but that's the problem with our favorite songs playlist. Because, like, I'm looking at a band, I'm like, man, I like both the songs of theirs that I could name right now. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> because those are the two that I've listened to on the playlist. And it's like, why did I give it a score of, like, a two? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very much biased by the best. But you ranked the nice at a low six. You gave yes a low seven. And in my opinion, I think this is a better album than either of those. I can Mm. see you liking it less than yes, maybe. And that's where I'm kind of at. We'll see. But for me, I gave yes a low eight, didn't I? Oh, yes. (laughs) You're correct. A low eight. I can see you liking yes better than this. So I guess, yeah, that still puts it in the sevens. The end of the day, what I said doesn't change. No, absolutely not. I just want to know how much you'd be crushed. I'm doing my best to remain uncrushed. It's the year of healing. So you're going to get scrunched. (laughs) I will remain unscrunched. (laughs) That's my goal. As for my scores, though, it's largely based on the first side of the album. I really enjoy just the concept and the execution on 2112 itself. Music, given a 94, lots of creative decisions. I don't think necessarily it's musically Rush's best foot forward, but it's certainly a good outing. Certainly a foot, and it is forward. Certainly a foot, and it is forward. Like I said, I feel like they kind of peaked in the 80 to 82 era. Mm. Farewell to Kings and Through Signals is like Supreme Rush for me. Gotcha. But still very good here. Lyrically, given it a 95, it's maybe a bit aggressive. That's the score that is probably the most biased. But I like the storytelling. I like the long form storytelling of 2112. Twilight Zone has some cool illusions. Tears is just a downright emotional sledgehammer and something for nothing has all those fun tidbits so there so there instruments of production i mean three of the best instrumentalists you're gonna find 96 absolutely incredible consistently overall vibe i really like this album it's never a burden to listen to giving it a 95 overall score then is a 95.7 puts it at number 14 
Number 14 is a top 20 album. Yeah, again, a little aggressive and a little biased, but I can admit it. As long as you can admit it, it's all that matters. Yeah. For me, it ends up just below Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life, and above Sufjan Stevens, Illinois. Wow, two we've done. Well, yes. I always relate it to two other that we've done. Oh, it's not like sandwiched between those. No, it's not sandwiched between them. Those are just the closest episodes for frame of reference. Gotcha. Yeah. As for me. All right, scrunch me. Put on your scrunchy pants. I'm cinching them up. Scrunch pants, just like sweatpants that you've like pulled really tight by the drawstring. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, this album is almost exactly what I expected it to be with the exceptions of I did not expect a 20-minute song and I did not expect a passage to Bangkok. Otherwise, the actual individual sections of 2112 and then the other tracks were pretty much exactly what I thought this album would be like based on my knowledge of Rush. Uh-huh. So, you know, I'll, several times you've brought in artists and I've been like, oh, I know what to expect from them, and then it's not been that at all. <laughs> Beach Boys. Yeah, but God only knows what we'd be without them. And, like, another good example is, like, uh, Rascal Flatts. I came in and be like, yeah, I'm going to love Rascal Flatts. And then we did the album. I was like, I really didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. I guess I don't know how you felt about Rush before, though. It seems like you were just lukewarm neutral. Lukewarm neutral is what is a good description. Didn't love them, didn't hate them. My top three in album order. Starting off with my honorable mention. Ghost. Ouch. On a six-track album, you're not picking, like, the flagship track for anything. Nope. Wow. Some of the individual sections could have... But as a whole, it does not. I'm a bit surprised. My top three, Twilight Zone, Lessons, Tears. I like that trio. So, you know, first and the last song. Sorry. So you really just leave out. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You really just leave out. Wait, you take that back. You only, you get to lose one of those. Cut one right now. What? Why? Because you took too many on Kaleo. Was that not the Frosty one? No. Noah Khan was the Frosty one. Oh, no. Noah Khan was Frosty's and Kaleo, you took two extra. Oh, no. Just bleep me. <laughs> Leave all this in, okay. but bleep the honorable mention so that then they'll we'll get to it and then they'll understand why it was bleeped. <laughs> yeah, well, but what happens if I do that is that you say, then the Twilight Zone lessons and tears, first and the last are the ones I left out. I mean. <laughs> so it really doesn't. It's it, The album order is prohibitive. It's, uh, you know, it's, they'll, they'll never know. Whatever. I'll bleep it and it'll be like a puzzle that they can figure out. You'll, you'll bleep it and, you know, they'll never be able to put it together. It's impossible. Sure. Wow. Wow. Twilight Zone, Lessons, Tears. Track one, two, and six left out. So I think, I don't know where you're going to score this yet, but just in general, if you hated the track on this album. I didn't say I hated it. Calm down. Okay, okay. Putting words in my mouth. <laughs> if you despised. <laughs> I think maybe I would have been better off to take you a different Rush album. I'm surprised you brought this one. I'll be honest. Again, I just wanted 121, 21, 12. Yeah, well, that right there is your downfall. How far down have we fallen? We've fallen to a six. Oh, no. I saw it coming, but that doesn't make it feel any better. Gonna go right below apoptosis. That I take a little issue with. Do you? Yes. Mm, That was not my favorite of albums. So the problem is, this is what I was discussing earlier, might be a little biased because I'm a big fan of the two uh, inner wave songs on on the playlist. Yeah. So could be a bit biased there, but it definitely goes below the sky is crying. So you just went, remember when I thought I was going to like Rascal Flats and it was so bad and then you just went and put this below that? I didn't say it was bad. Well, no, I'm putting words in your mouth again, but stop putting words in my mouth. That's how it feels. Uh, but it's definitely going below the sky is crying. So it could maybe go above apoptosis, but the bias, you got some bias. I get a little bias. Okay. The way the bias flows. That means it cancels out. And this is a totally unbiased episode. Exactly. Well, I think that's it. I think we're done here. It's not it. Well, I don't know what your unit is yet. Oh, I don't have one. We're in too big a rush. We no, Missing unit. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what to do about that. Six missing units out of ten because we're in too big a rush. Six missing units. I guess so. Parentheses in too big a rush. Okay. <laughs> well, if we're in a big rush, I guess we should wrap this up pretty quickly. If you like this episode or if you think you'd like any episode that we do. Or if you were just milk warm to this episode. Milk warm? I'm sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> you just combine like milk toast and lukewarm? Yeah. <laughs> it's just milk warm. Gross. 
Warm milk is a thing. Wow. That's right. If you like this episode or if you were just milk warm to this episode. If you're milk warm or Luke toast uh, this, <laughs> to this episode. Luke toast. Yeah, that's right. Whether you were excited about it, milk warm or Luke toast, check out our socials. That's been it pod on X, at Spin It Pod Official, on Instagram and threads, and on the web at www.spinitpod.com. Tell a friend who scrunches a lot about the podcast. Send us your scrunchers and see (laughs) if they like music, I guess. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Give us a good old thumbs up, like, follow heart thing, rating, stars, points. And we'll see you next week for another episode in the wonderful... We're not in Mixtober anymore. It's Mixvember. It's Mixtober. It's Mixtober, (laughs) yeah. Mixtober is mixed over. But we're still doing episodes, so we'll see you next week. Have a good old time, and until next time, keep keep spinning. I was thinking Spinvember. Mixvember. Mixvember. I really don't like any of them. I don't like any of them either. I think it should just be November. It could be Yesvember. No, because we already did Yes. Dude, we did. No. That's very Vember of you. Sure. Anyway, we're in a rush. Let's get out of here. Oh, yeah, we gotta go. Busy plans tonight. Oh, me too. My night's full. See ya. See ya. Hit and stop. Guys. Hey, it's me. I'm back with the pizza. They put the pineapple on the whole thing because I asked them to. Guys? Hello? I've got nothing to do tonight. Free all night? No plan?